issues, one man searches for intelligent conversation. From Dedham, Massachusetts, the birthplace of modern democracy, this is You Don't Have to Yell with your host, Dan Dan Sally. Welcome to your home for the politically homeless, the podcast for those of you who like your politics in colors other than red and blue. If you are new here, a hearty welcome to you. And if you like what you hear today, please share this podcast with one friend you think might like it too. Now, in our last episode, we spoke with Mark Goldwine of the Committee for Responsible Federal Budget and discussed how increasing national debt and the increase in debt service payments could eventually crowd out investment in other areas. Now, longtime listeners might remember the very first conversation I had with Ben Studebaker was on the impact austerity measures imposed by the British government in the 19th century ultimately led to its decline as the world's leading power. And I asked him back on to revisit this topic as I thought it worth drawing some parallels between their situation and that of the United States today. If you already heard our last conversation, there are a ton of new tidbits in here, so you will not be disappointed. And if you didn't, well, then it's all new to you anyway, and that's great stuff. I will be back at the end with my final thoughts. I had a conversation just two weeks ago with a guy named Mark Goldwine out of the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Really smart guy, knows his data. And one of the things he was talking about was how the threats posed by the national debt in a lot of cases are not necessarily as calamitous as we paint them out to be, but are just as dire. And the biggest and most realistic one is the idea that eventually debt service payments eat into federal spending. And then that takes away from spending we do for infrastructure or education or any other number of projects. And like most things do, most roads lead back to Ben Studebaker. And our very first conversation ever was on the effects that austerity in 19th century Great Britain had on its economy and on its standing in the world. And when we first spoke, I don't even think I knew the right questions to ask. And I thought it worth diving into the subject again, because I think especially with this recent conversation, it's especially relevant. So to kick off the conversation, could you just talk about the debt situation in Great Britain in the early 1800s or mid 1800s? Yeah. So the British empire in the early 1800s takes the leading role in fighting Napoleon Bonaparte, emperor of France. And when I say takes the leading role, I mean that the British empire has to pay to fund the armies of allied states. So it has to finance troops from allied countries that are not in position to independently finance their own militaries. And at the peak of this subsidizing program, the British Empire is fielding about 450,000 troops from Austria and Russia. And it's just paying for those troops. And that's money it's never going to see again. Austria and Russia are not going to repay that money their participation in the war is conditional on receiving these subsidies. 
and because Britain is desperate to defeat Napoleon and crush the French Empire, it is willing to just shill out enormous amounts of money to maintain these huge, gigantic Eastern European armies. All of this runs Britain's debt as a percentage of GDP over 250% by the time the war is over. And it then becomes very important to get the debt down, in part because Britain is firmly on the gold standard and is trying to defend its pegging of the British pound to gold. And in this period in the 1800s, the dollar to pound conversion rate, it's, it's something like $5 to a pound. It's mm-hmm. really, this is a very strong currency that Britain has. And Britain's very committed to defending the value. So because of this, over the course of the 1800s, Britain focuses very, very heavily on interest payments. And the percentage of the British budget devoted to interest payments, it ranges. Uh, But immediately after the war, we're talking like 50% of the budget is just dealing with this debt. And even by, say, 1890, you know, 60, 70 years later, it's like 20%. So for point of comparison, in the United States in 2022, something like 5% of the budget is expected to be spent on interest. And that's expected to rise to 10% by 2029. So it's a sizable chunk for us. It's more than we're used to. And our economy and our budget are very big. So it's much larger sums of money that we're talking about. But as a percentage of the budget, it's a truly gargantuan job that the British Empire was stuck with. One thing, too, to clue the listener in on is that number might sound small. You know, that 5% number might sound small, but that exceeds the amount we spend on things like education, for example. So it is a huge line item on our budget. One thing, too, that's, that's worthy of note is that what the British government provided back in the 1800s and what the U.S. government provides today are vastly different. So what kinds of services was the British government providing in that period? Yeah, not a ton, (laughs) apart from military services. The governments in the early 1800s were really big military and policing apparatuses with only a smattering of other things. Most of the time, other kinds of social programs or services would be filled in by private organizations, charitable organizations, churches. There wasn't a ton of social spending. So today, when we talk about, oh, austerity, we think about cuts to social programs. In the 1800s, what this does to the British budget is it prevents it from expanding in areas where other governments are able to expand. Other governments are going to be able to start providing public services at an earlier point, new services that Britain doesn't, it will will have to rationalize away and say, well, we don't really need to provide these services. Oh, you know, they're doing that, but that isn't really necessary. We haven't done that in the past, so we don't need to start doing that. And the interest payments become this motivator to excuse not expanding state activity into new areas where other states are expanding. And the chief example I want to give of this is education. So in Britain during this period, 
you don't have universal public education. That's something that's gradually created and it's delayed. The entry of many, 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 many kids into schools is delayed in Britain because of this budgeting mess. So to give you a sense of how much it's delayed, in 1870, about 49% of British children were enrolled in school. In Germany, that number was 67%. and the United States, it was 72%. So Britain was about 20 points behind in terms of school enrollment. By 1870, which many people think of as the high point of the British Empire, by the high point of the British Empire, they're behind by about a fifth of their population in educational attainment. And that's because there is no big expansion of state funding for schools because there's no money to do it. So if you look at some of the different estimates that we have for education spending as a share of the budget, 1870 in Britain, about 2% of the budget went to education compared to 10% in Germany. In 1880, 5% in Britain compared to 18 in Germany. In 1890, 6% in Britain compared to 17% in Germany. 1908% in Britain compared to 18% in Germany. And even by 1910, 12% in Britain, 20% in Germany. So not only is Britain behind in 1870, it continues to lag behind. And so even as it's trying to make up the gap, it's not able to make it up. And Germany is educating a much larger percentage of its population to a much higher level um, for really the whole hundred years after the Napoleonic Wars. What's the economic outcome of all that? The economic outcome is that Britain is not able to prevent other states from industrializing. And Britain's not able to do this, even though there are some aspects of British policy that are well managed with regard to managing competition. Trade policy, for instance, Britain was very good at negotiating trade deals with other states that suppress the development of competitive industries in those countries. Mm -hmm. And many European writers in the 1800s, like Friedrich List, complain at great length about how Britain will use this free trade policy to force states to import huge amounts of British manufactured goods. And this stifles the development of other industrial centers, which stifles the development of military competitors. Very frustrating to the Germans, very frustrating to the United States. We understate the degree to which Britain played a role, a direct role, in creating the conditions for the Civil War by pitting the North and the South against each other through trade policy. The way that Britain intervened in our development, every time we tried to impose protective tariffs to help our northern industries get off the ground, Mm -hmm. Britain would punish the South with tariffs on cotton exports to create animosity between the North and the South and make it so that those two economic models could not coexist. The British were very smart about trade policy. The thing that's amazing is even though they were very clever about their trade policy, this became an albatross around the neck of the British Empire. And so even though it had an enormous amount of territory and eventually an enormous amount of population, this is an empire that includes India. It's an empire that adds substantial stretches of of Africa during the late 1800s. It's a gigantic empire. But 
because of this debt burden, it's not able to expand its education spending. So its population falls behind continental populations in educational attainment. And then also it doesn't have money for infrastructure spending. And if you look at the United States and Prussia, of course, both the U.S. and Prussia fight in the Napoleonic Wars, the United States in the War of 1812, Mm -hmm. and then Prussia on again, off again in the different coalition wars. Those states don't see their debt as a percentage of GDP rise above 50% in the 1800s compared to 250 for Britain. That's Mm. how much more Britain spends on those wars than the United States or Prussia. So they're in position to invest in railroads, in canals, their physical infrastructure. They're able to invest in electrifying. They're able to invest in getting the pipes in. And this is stuff that if you're in 1820, you don't realize you're going to want money for. You don't know technologically that you're going to need these things or that not investing in them is going to cause you to be dramatically behind. In 1820, nobody has these things. So as these opportunities for investment come up, it's easy to rationalize that you don't really need to spend the money. And you can tell yourself and you can tell other people, oh, you know, the states that are spending money on that stuff, they must be wasting their money. That isn't going to work out. That's just going to be a money pit. You can say this, but over time, some of these investments do pay off. And when they pay off, that causes Britain to lose its competitive advantage and get into a situation where it's going to have to fight world wars against Germany, and then it's going to be dependent on the United States. There are some parallels here with what you're saying about Great Britain and what's going on in the U.S. today, because what appears to be going on is that our budget process is really just an exercise in kicking the can down the road. There's not a lot of oversight and there's not really any political wiggle room to have any new spending initiatives passed because, of course, the incentive is to stymie the opposing party's initiatives. And so what you have is this situation where the budget's continuing to grow. It's continuing to go in the same direction, but there doesn't seem to be any meaningful shifts strategically in where we spend in order to adapt to the world of 10 years from now. One thing I want to cite, though, is that Our current state is enabled by the fact that there aren't really any caps on government debt, or at least there aren't the same caps that there were back then. Great Britain at the time was on the gold standard. Did they really have any other policy options besides austerity in this case? Well, eventually we do get off of gold. Even the British eventually do get off of gold. Part of the trouble is that in the environment of the 1800s, getting off of gold seems like an insane thing to do for any extended period of time. You might talk about doing it as an emergency war measure, but it would be understood that that would be temporary and that eventually you'd be getting back on it. It took a long time for people to come around to the idea that being on the gold standard is costly to a state, particularly if you're the leading empire. What it does is it restricts your policy options quite heavily because you're constantly having to defend the pegging of your currency to gold, which means that you aren't able to make big investments. And in this way, you end up upholding the whole international monetary system by maintaining the pegging of your currency to gold, and then many other states are are positioning their currencies relative to your currency. You're maintaining the whole international system, and you feel like, therefore, this important and indispensable country, but it becomes a burden rather than something that empowers you. 
Yeah. And so this is the reason why ultimately Richard Nixon decides, you know, that the Bretton Woods system is a burdensome system that forces the United States to constantly subsidize the development of the European countries rather than a system which empowers the United States by making it this indispensable country. Yeah, it's the, it's the Triffin dilemma, right? Where if you're going to have the world's reserve currency, you have to have a certain amount of debt out there in order for other people to use your currency. And so right then and there, you have to run some sort of deficit. And, and this brings up maybe like a broader, more philosophical question that I've had, which is Great Britain in, in many cases was really dependent on territory in order to sustain itself as a great power. So it needed to possess India, for example. It needed to possess foreign powers in order for its economy to be strong and vibrant and, and all that good stuff. In a lot of ways, it doesn't seem the US is in that situation in the sense that we can feed ourselves, we can fuel ourselves. If the entire world cuts us off, it's not gonna be pretty, but I, I, I'd imagine the circumstances aren't quite as dire. What do you think about that statement? You have a point. It's not just that we are capable of production, though. The thing that Britain was really out looking for wasn't for, say, India to manufacture a bunch of stuff that couldn't be made in Britain. It was quite the contrary. Britain was manufacturing an enormous amount of stuff, more than it could possibly sell internally within the British Isles. And it needed somebody to buy that stuff. And so by acquiring all of these territories, these are markets that Britain could compel very straightforwardly to buy British manufactured goods. Other markets could be made to do it, but you had to trick their governments with free trade agreements. But the colonies themselves were you know, locked into the system and were stuck importing enormous amounts of, say, British cloth. In the United States, it's not just that we can make a lot of stuff. I mean, we can. But the thing that really makes the United States unique as a power is that it can consume not just everything it makes, but the surplus product of the other manufacturing states. At this point, manufacturing is common. When Britain got going, manufacturing was special. The fact that Britain could manufacture and that it could stop other countries from manufacturing was the source of its power. Today, it's that the Americans can consume not just everything that they make, but so much that if you're a country that wants to develop and wants to become a manufacturing state, you need access to the American market. Otherwise, you're not going to be able to find anybody to buy the stuff you make. If you look at an American's home, a suburban home especially, a professional American suburban home in particular, it's absolutely loaded with junk from all over the world absolute gobbledygook junk that nobody really needs, that doesn't really serve much of a purpose apart from filling the space. And Americans always talk about how you've got to fill the space. You know, it, it, a house doesn't look right in the United States if there are places where there isn't junk made in foreign countries with sweatshop labor. There's got to be you know, junk in every corner of an American's home. And this has been of enormous benefit to the United States insofar as every country is desperate to get access to that market, and that creates leverage for the United States in foreign policy. And that foreign policy leverage, that's the strength. And what we tend to see is when things go wrong in a certain part of a country's 
policy, if a country becomes incapable of delivering effective policy in one area, it will then try to compensate for that in a different area. So in the case of the British Empire, as the budget becomes incapable of making long-term investments, as they become unable to do that, they become more dependent on a trade policy that suppresses development elsewhere. So they can't expand manufacturing through investments in new technology and new infrastructure, but they can use the free trade policy and the military to try to suppress development in other places. And that's what Britain increasingly has to do as it becomes less able to invest. In the United States, what we do is we ensure that we are this indispensable consumer country. And we keep states bound to us through access to our consumer market. And increasingly, our foreign policy is interested in preventing China from developing that kind of consumer capacity that would make it a real alternative to the United States. Yeah, there's a, yeah. There's a ton to talk about there. Yep. I think the first thing I want to address is the fact that it seems like what the U.S. has done is almost created a colonial model in reverse, where instead of colonizing markets that we can sell to, we've sort of bound the entire world to our economy by creating this culture of compulsive shoppers, if I'm hearing you correctly. I want to get into the China comment, though, because I know one of the things we've talked about a lot in our conversations is how China has a distinct political interest in not developing a consumer economy, just as the U.S. has a chief political interest in ensuring China doesn't develop a consumer economy. Could you talk a little bit about China's interest here? Because it seems there's this perverse alignment between the two powers in this case. Yeah, I think the Chinese economy as a whole and the ordinary Chinese person, it would be a very positive thing to develop a stronger consumer economy. The thing is, the way that China has developed, it's developed through these local governments that make investments mainly in infrastructure. And this development has made a set of people in China very rich. It's created a set of elites and a set of entrenched groups that do not want to see transfers to households. Because if that revenue is going to households, that means it's not going to these infrastructure building schemes. And the infrastructure building schemes, they're the ones who make huge, huge numbers of apartment blocks that you know, famously nobody ever uses and end up getting demolished 10 years later. You know, they build enormous amounts of stuff. We're always talking in the States about how you know, we don't have enough housing and everything's getting more expensive. Wouldn't it be nice if we could build a bunch of housing? Well, China has a surplus of this stuff. They're building way too much of all of this. They can't use the stuff that they are building. And they're not able to make their economy more well-rounded as a result. And if we lived in some kind of perfect world where we were really just thinking about what would, be, what would make life better for Americans and what would make life better for the Chinese people, what we would do is we would kind of rebalance this a little bit. You know, we would get to a point where we were building more stuff over here and they were building less stuff over there but they were consuming a little bit more stuff. They were enjoying more day-to-day -day luxuries in life over there. And we were maybe not buying so much unnecessary garbage over here. You, know, you could imagine a world where we even this out a little bit. The issue is there are too many entrenched groups that benefit from this current situation of enormous imbalance, where you can build enormous amounts of housing in China that nobody will ever use. And now if you want to buy a single family home in an ordinary American metropolitan area, it costs $500,000.
this is the, the thing. When you're talking about great power politics and empire building, what's convenient for the ordinary citizen or leads to a good, happy life for the ordinary citizen is not necessarily relevant. Yeah. Yeah. And this, you know, there's this this actually leads into another question I wanted to ask. And this is something I brought up a lot on this podcast before, which is when we talk about national debt, we think of it as a negotiation between a government and its creditors. But really, it's a three way negotiation. It's a negotiation between the government, its creditors and the citizens. And depending on the level of power the citizenry has, that will dictate how much policy impacts the bondholders versus the government versus the citizens. Getting back to the unique position of the U.S., do you feel like this puts us in a different situation than 19th century Great Britain in the sense that the people arguably are more powerful? And so ultimately, the government will have to do a little put a little bit more thought into whose commitment it honors, that of the citizens or that of the bondholders. I'd, I'd like to say that I thought that was true. I'm not sure that the American people are that much more powerful than the British people in the 1800s, in part because if you are fighting something like the Napoleonic Wars, all of a sudden everybody will get behind what you're doing. And you know, lots of, of creditors were willing to fund those subsidies to Austria and Russia, even though you know, fiscally they made no sense because they supported the war effort. And if you have a foreign policy crisis, you can often get the population to go along with what you're doing, even if what you're doing is not in their long-term economic interest or even short-term economic interest. If you're fighting a big war, you can get people to do rationing. You can get people to tolerate inflation. As, as we're seeing, you know, because of the conflict in Ukraine, people are more willing to tolerate levels of energy prices and levels of inflation uh, than they were when those things were just due to COVID. You know, uh, but, you know, even when they were due to COVID to some degree, because it was this big global crisis, there was an excuse for it. So you had economic conditions that were very negative for a lot of households, but a lot of voters mm -hmm. willing to make space for it and accommodate it. States are quite able to get people to accommodate and put up with lots of different kinds of stuff. And I think over the years, as the political system has become more nominally democratic, states have also developed their apparatuses for convincing and become more adept at convincing people in different situations and circumstances. I do think that you know, one key uh, thing that I would kind of throw in here is that there's also a, a fourth entity in this in this group, right? It's not just the state, the bondholders and the citizens. It's also, do the bondholders have other states that they can go to, that they can get a better deal from? So the thing about being a bondholder, right, is if all the states at any given time are committed to screwing over bondholders, then you're in a really tough spot because you can't just dump one market and go somewhere else. So when we're talking about the United States, there's this question of, well, if you're not going to buy American bonds and you're not going to hold American dollars, well, what are you going to hold and who are you going to trust? Are you going to trust the Chinese Communist Party to protect your investment? Are you going to trust the European Union with all of its internal divisions and problems? Who are you going to look to? I mean, the European Union needed a bailout from the Federal Reserve during the euro crisis. You know, the euro dollar system is the real deal. The euro is not a freestanding currency that would work on its own without the help of the dollar. So where do you go? 
where would you buy bonds if not in the United States? And I think part of the difficulty for bondholders when they're dealing with the American case is that if the United States is really committed to not giving the bondholders a good deal, there aren't a lot of other places mm. they can get a good deal from. Whereas if you look at European countries, anytime there's trouble for a European country, bondholders go, well, we don't have to sell. We don't have to buy Italian government bonds. We don't have to buy Greek government bonds. There's no particular reason why one would have to buy any of those bonds. But American bonds are a different story. For one, if the American economy goes belly up for any lengthy period of time, then this engine of consumption breaks and all of the industries all over the world, which depend on selling things that end up in the homes of those American consumers, uh, all of those industries end up in deep trouble, which means all of those governments all over the world end up in deep trouble. So if you try to get your money out of the United States and go somewhere else, well, when the American consumer economy breaks, the contagion spreads wherever it is that you ran to. Mm. And that gives these bondholders no choice. Now, fortunately for them, the United States is usually pretty committed to upholding a system of international trade, which is good for these bondholders. And because the United States is politically committed to that, most of the time the bondholders end up doing just fine. But if for whatever reason you had a U.S. government that wanted to really kick the bondholders in the face, they really wouldn't have much recourse if it was the United States doing it. Most of the time when somebody does it, it's a small country, a developing country, a rogue state, a state that doesn't have a lot of leverage, and therefore a state that's easy to punish. It's noteworthy, too. We've done this twice before, and both have had to deal with adjusting the U.S. dollar's convertibility to gold. FDR did it in the Great Depression, and of course, Nixon did it by taking the U.S. off the gold standard. So there's kind of almost a, a pattern of soft default here. So that brings up another question, which is if the compulsive shopping of the United States is ultimately driving the world's economic engine, and if in part U.S. debt is helping fund that or helping prop that up, is there a real limit to debt to GDP for the United States? Like, do the traditional rules no longer apply? Well, I think... What some people are imagining is the end game, you know, which is bondholders saying enough's enough. We're not going to take it anymore. I don't think that's realistic. What is realistic is an increase in the amount of the government budget that goes to financing interest and an erosion of the capacities of the state to make investments in the future. And the thing about the British situation in 1820 it doesn't look like there's anything terribly wrong with just not spending a lot of money on other stuff not starting a bunch of Prussian schools. You know, it doesn't sound like a problem in 1820. It's only over time as the world changes and technological possibilities change that you start to realize that these failures of investment are going to have consequences and that there's only so long that you can make up for them with other kinds of foreign policy measures that buy you time or keep your rivals down. You're not going to be able to do that forever as the world changes and as new investment opportunities arise where the state needs to take a more proactive role. So I think that the risk for the United States is not bondholders refusing to lend. It's a gradual diminishment of the capacity of the United States to invest, which will have consequences that would be hard for me to spell out, because if I could spell them out, then it would be really, really obvious that we needed to make those investments. 
the investments that will really get us are the ones that are not really obvious, that require a government that has a little bit of flexibility, can spend money on stuff that may or may not pay off on the basis of, you know, somebody thinks this might be a good idea, so let's give it a try. That kind of stuff never even gets on the agenda in the States. We only talk about making expenditures in areas where there are huge, obvious gripping problems. The bridges are falling down. There's teacher shortages because we won't pay the teachers. And so we're having to hire people as teachers who don't have teaching qualifications. We only really talk about actually spending money on something when it's in complete shambles in this country. And that's not how you maintain your position long-term as a powerful state. That, I think, is the bigger concern with all of this. And it's made worse by the fact that we are having a hard time making these investments leads our politics to be increasingly about cultural antagonism. If you can't spend money, what do you do to show the voters that you're representing them? Well, you talk like them, you act like them, you make a display of showing how you have the same values that they do. And this has led to this culture war in the States. And this culture war crowds out discussion of real problems, crowds out discussion of investment opportunities for the country, and creates polarization and gridlock that makes it harder even when you do have resources available to allocate them, because the opposite side is just looking to frustrate you for cultural reasons and doesn't care about the long-term economic consequences. All of this is facilitated by the fact that the United States is so enormously powerful at this particular moment and so much richer than other states, including China at this particular moment, that everybody can imagine that maybe it just won't change in your lifetime. And if you were in 1820 in the UK, it didn't change in your lifetime. You died and Britain was still the most powerful state in the system. You could have been 20 years old in 1820, and you may never have noticed what this was doing to you. You could have lived to be 100 in 1820 and only dimly have noticed at the very end of your life the cost of all of this to your country and to the future of the population. It's something that will get you slowly over time, this failure to invest, this failure to have foresight, this focus on whatever's in front of your face, this ability to indulge in petty squabbling internally. It's not something that will cause us to collapse as a state or to have any kind of huge, big moment of truth while we're alive. We're not going to notice it in that kind of way in 2030 or 2040 or 2050. But by 2200, yeah, you're going to see it. I hope you enjoyed this episode. And if you did please consider leaving it a review, preferably five stars, but however many stars you think it's worth. For additional commentary on this episode and other issues of the day, you can sign up for YDHTY's email newsletter at ydhty.com news. Now, the decline of Great Britain wasn't something that could be witnessed in real time. It was a gradual process where decisions to defer investments in the future made the economy less competitive over a long period that went unnoticed by those living through it. And we can't say which investments we're not making today that might make the U.S. more competitive down the road. But if we look to the past, I think the internet and the tech sector at large were products of bets made by the Department of Defense. And those bets 
produced a sector that represents 32% of the total global market and $1.8 trillion in GDP. That's almost 10%. Now, we're also not making the same investment in areas like education and infrastructure we were in the past. And as Ben mentioned, most investments are more for emergency care when things go wrong, such as cities like Jackson, Mississippi and Flint, Michigan, lacking clean drinking water or underperforming schools entering into receivership. And much of this money is being eaten up by Social Security and Medicare, which have grown from 20% of the federal budget in 1970 to just under 38% in 2021. We're effectively increasing the share of our budget dedicated to consumption, which is money we're never gonna see back. And I can't help but look at the current budget debate through this lens. The politically expedient thing to do is the wrong thing, and we either need leadership that's going to be bold or stupid enough to step on the third rails of Social Security and Medicare, or we need to take the power of the purse away from Congress altogether. And I can't help but think part of the problem is having a global reserve currency. It is a monetary monkey's paw that has led to the decline of the Dutch Empire, the British Empire, and could take the U.S. down as well. A universal reserve currency that's stable, liquid, and widely accepted and not in control of any one sovereign nation seems to be the best way to handle this. And it's not Bitcoin. It is absolutely not Bitcoin. Just making that clear. I would love to hear your thoughts. So shoot me an email at heydan, that is H-E-Y-D-A-N at Y-D-H-T-Y dot com. That's it. As always... Music courtesy of Quellatac. YDHTY's Director of Continuous Improvement is the Admirable Admiral Adam Yaffe. YDHTY is produced in loving memory of the big Gino, Jason Putney. Until the next, this is Dan Sally. Uh, bye-bye.